welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. You broke my heart this week, BIA. You broke my heart. But I can't put you down. To quote the now late great Meatloaf, quote, Like a sinner before the gates of heaven, I'll come crawling on back to you, end quote. Let's crawl. First to the first. So first up, we have DeGraca v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on January 18th, 2022. This case is about the categorical approach. Mr. DeGraca is a lawful permanent resident from Cape Verde. He's been one since coming to the U.S. at 13 years old a long time ago, but he's never naturalized. Sigh. In 2016, he was convicted of driving a motor vehicle without the consent of the owner or lessee in violation of Rhode Island General Law Section 31-9-1, receiving a five-year suspended sentence of incarceration and a five-year probation. DHS alleged that the conviction was an aggravated felony theft offense, as defined at INA Section 101-A43-G and initiated removal proceedings. The IJ and the BIA agreed, but the First Circuit did not. Categorical approach, which requires first that we know precisely what is the definition of the removable theft offense aggravated felony. Quote, the generic definition of theft offense is found within the BIA's 2000 decision in matter of VZS, end quote. Under that decision, theft offenses are those criminal statutes that require as an element, quote, a taking of property whenever there is a criminal intent to deprive the owner of the rights and benefits of ownership, even if such deprivation is less than total or permanent, end quote. Under VZS, statutes that permit conviction for de minimis conduct like, quote, glorified borrowing and joyriding, end quote, will not categorically meet the aggravated felony definition. Therefore, in the First Circuit, the Federal Aggravated Felony Theft Definition encompasses criminal statutes that meet all three of the following requirements. 1. The crime must entail a taking of property. 2. It must include criminal intent to deprive. And 3. It must exclude 
de minimis deprivations of ownership interests. Now here's where it gets interesting. The First Circuit believed it important in matter of VZS, quote, that while the California unauthorized use statute did not explicitly exclude de minimis conduct from its scope, the board concluded that such an exclusion could be inferred from the fact that a separate California statute covered joyriding, end quote. So using the converse of that rationale and relying upon some of its other decisions, the First Circuit held that for all applications of the categorical approach in all cases, quote, overbreath occurs where a statute, by its own text, and as read in the context of the larger statutory scheme, does not preclude application to conduct outside the federal definition, end quote. Emphasis by me. So that's kind of confusing, right? It's kind of like the reverse realistic probability test in a way. To use the logic to your client's advantage, figure out conduct similar to the conduct at issue with your client's conviction that is outside the definition of the removability provision, and then show that your state doesn't criminalize that conduct anywhere else. And voila, it appears you have an overbroad criminal statute vis-a-vis a removable offense or so one might reasonably argue after reading this decision. Applying that rationale here, and while Section 31-9-1 satisfied the first two elements of an aggravated felony theft offense, quote, there is no relevant Rhode Island provision, end quote, criminalizing joyriding. Although admittingly, there does appear to be still on the books a very similar crime for joyriding horses that's over 100 years old. If you're interested in committing an ancient misdemeanor, Horses aside, the First Circuit, quote, interprets the lack of a separate Rhode Island joyriding statute to be evidence that the conduct prohibited by Section 31-9-1 includes joyriding, end quote. Horse on. The First Circuit buttressed its holding with Rhode Island state court decisions that appear to criminalize joyriding under the statute, a more classical application of the realistic probability test, to be fair. But it is just that, buttressing. Quote, in sum, Section 31-9-1 is overbroad. Unlike the board's definition of theft, 31-9-1 does not explicitly exclude de minimis deprivations of ownership interests. End quote. And Rhode Island doesn't criminalize joyriding in any other statute. That's the crux of the decision, and it's a logic that, as I explained above, is very interesting and very broadly applicable. To be honest, I was already a bit giddy about this one, but then the First Circuit went further to state expressly that the realistic probability test did not require Mr. DeGracca to find specific cases prosecuting joyriding under the statute to succeed. As held by many courts, including the First Circuit previously, but not including at a minimum the Fifth Circuit, quote, At least where a state statute is plainly overbroad, a petitioner need not produce an actual case to satisfy the realistic probability test. End quote. The statutory text will make a statute overbroad, even if you can't find a state court decision applying the statute in an overbroad manner. The First Circuit believes this statute plainly overbroad for the reasons I just stated. Recall the absence of language exempting joyriding, making the statute plainly overbroad. And that's all she wrote. Mr. DeGracca hasn't been convicted of an aggravated felony and isn't removable. The ultimate holding here aligns with Castillo v. Holder from the Fourth Circuit in 2015, where the Fourth Circuit, quote, found that a conviction under a nearly identical Virginia unauthorized use statute did not constitute an aggravated felony theft offense, end quote. Congratulations, Robert F. Weber and Randy Olin for petitioner. What a case. 
Lots of commentary by me throughout the summary on this one, but check out this final footnote on the realistic probability test. Quote, We also note that it is unsurprising that there would be little case law involving prosecutions of minor instances of joyriding, particularly in a small state like Rhode Island. It seems manifestly unfair to have a petitioner's fate depend on such vagaries on a local prosecutor's charging decisions or how willing a state court judge is to write an opinion in a particular matter, end quote. Also, in just spitballing here, how might this case affect matter of Diaz-Lizarraga from the BIA in 2016? Recall on Diaz-Lizarraga, the BIA changed the CIMT definition to include, for the first time in 50 years, crimes that involve takings, quote, with an intent to deprive the owner of his property either permanently or under circumstances where the owner's property rights are substantially eroded, end quote. To my knowledge, no circuit has actually deferred to Diaz-Lizarraga's new definition of a CIMT. If I was thinking of challenging it, I might look to cases arising in the First Circuit now. And that is DeGraca v. Garland. Turning then to the Board of Immigration Appeals, we first have matter of Laguerre. This is a crimmigration case all about divisibility. And this is how the BIA applies the categorical approach, a bit different than the First Circuit decision I just summarized. Mr. Laguerre is a lawful permanent resident from Haiti who, in 2007, was convicted of possession of a controlled dangerous substance in violation of Section 2C, 35-10A1 of the New Jersey Statutes. DHS alleged that that made him removable under INA Section 237-A2BI, a conviction for a law relating to a controlled substance. Like we just discussed, the analysis comes down to the categorical approach, and the issue here is this. Does New Jersey criminalize possession of more controlled substances than do the feds? If they do, the crime is not categorically a law relating to a controlled substance. And lo and behold, New Jersey does criminalize possession of more controlled substances, at least in 2007, which is the applicable period of analysis due to the year of conviction. So Mr. Laguerre filed a motion to terminate his removal proceedings, which an immigration judge granted. DHS appealed, and here, the BIA reversed. Now, the BIA agreed. The New Jersey statute is not categorically a removable controlled substance offense because New Jersey does criminalize more controlled substances than do the feds. Namely, something called dextrorphan. Check it out. Or don't. But that doesn't end the inquiry if the New Jersey statute is divisible as to the substance possessed. And here, the BIA held that it was. Here's why. A statute is divisible if the alternative ways to violate it are elements rather than means. Elements are, quote, the things the prosecution must prove to sustain a conviction, end quote. Means, on the other hand, quote, merely spell out various factual ways of committing some component of the offense, end quote, which a jury is not required to find and a defendant is not required to admit. Finally, the fifth element, also known as Lilu, needs Bruce Willis's love to prevent that evil ball thing from destroying the earth in the 23rd century. If I've made that joke before, I'm really sorry, but the cases are beginning to blur together. No less important than Lilu, is the New Jersey drug possessed an element or a means of committing the offense? That is the questions. 
Does the jury have to agree what the defendant possessed, or merely that the defendant possessed one of a multitude of controlled substances to reach a conviction in the dirty jurors? It's an element, said the BIA, overturning the IJ. And that's despite the IJ relying on a New Jersey appeals court binding decision stating that, quote, the nature of the controlled dangerous substance, like the quantity, is not an element of the offense, end quote. So that's a heavy lift for the BIA to get around. After all, the Supreme Court's Mathis decision really couldn't be more clear that the BIA and IJ must defer to state court decisions defining the elements of a state criminal offense. But the BIA distinguished this New Jersey case and another one from about 20 years ago, stating that, quote, decisions did not give the term element the precise meaning and significance the Supreme Court did in Mathis, end quote. The BIA held that the precedential New Jersey cases didn't really know what they were doing in their means versus elements analysis, and so, quote, New Jersey does not have a published case that definitively answers whether the identity of the controlled dangerous substance possessed is an element, end quote. Working therefore on its clean slate, the BIA believed it instructive that the New Jersey Supreme Court has upheld convictions for separate counts of possession of a controlled dangerous substance where multiple drugs were possessed all at once. So that indicated to the BIA that the specific drug possessed is an element of the offense. Else, wouldn't multiple convictions violate double jeopardy? A contraire, Mr. Lagar's attorney retorted. In a 1999 published case, New Jersey, quote, convicted a defendant of possession of a controlled dangerous substance based on an indictment that listed multiple controlled dangerous substances under each count, end quote i.e. the realistic probability test at work. The non-citizen actually found a case. But, said the BIA, this, quote, is the only published case the respondent cites in support of this argument, end quote, and actually believe the case a bit ambiguous as to whether New Jersey can actually convict without a jury agreeing on the specific drug because the case was ultimately remanded for a corrected judgment. Quote, Therefore, while New Jersey may charge a defendant with multiple controlled dangerous substances in the same count, end quote, the BIA isn't convinced whether it can convict. Begs the question to me, though, how can a prosecutor charge something that a jury apparently can't sustain? And does it matter under the realistic probability test? I leave that to you, dear listeners. The BIA also held that the New Jersey statute itself supported its finding because it, quote, cross-references an exhaustive list of substances, end quote. That is, the New Jersey statute refers to four separate controlled substance schedules, which, quote, while not clear evidence, end quote, of divisibility in this case, it does support the BIA's holding, according to the BIA. The BIA distinguished some Third Circuit precedent and relied on New Jersey legislative history. Apparently, it is not the case that everything is legal in New Jersey. So, the controlled substance possessed is divisible. That then allows for application of the modified categorical approach, and so, turning to the reliable conviction documents as that approach allows, the BIA saw that Mr. Laguerre possessed cocaine, which both New Jersey and the feds criminalize. Mr. Laguerre is therefore removable. BIA member O'Connor concurred to state that the majority opinion is, quote, excellent, end quote, and that the categorical approach should be scrapped in immigration cases, particularly as these are, quote, civil proceedings where the respondent has no right to a jury trial under the Sixth Amendment, end quote, making application of the categorical approach, quote, all the more remarkable, end quote. I respectfully disagree with that, and I've got a little bit more. 
I mean, my tone does indicate that I'm not fond of the holding, but that doesn't really matter. And I get it, the BIA is not wrong that the categorical approach has made this all much more difficult and generally protected some non-citizens from removal. I guess where I disagree is the implicit holding that that's necessarily a bad thing. Also in swiping away what appears to be New Jersey precedent directly on point, and a pretty good realistic probability test showing. Anyway, here's some silver lining. The BIA finally applied the Mathis peak in a manner the Supreme Court told it to in Mathis. Quote, Because New Jersey case law and the language of the statute of conviction support our finding that the identity of the controlled dangerous substance possessed is an element of the statute, but do not provide clear or definitive answers, we may peek at the respondent's record of conviction for the sole and limited purpose of determining whether the controlled dangerous substance listed are elements of the offense, end quote. That is, looking to the conviction documents to determine divisibility is only a last resort to be resorted to if the other analyses, state case law, jury instructions, and the statutory text don't conclusively resolve the divisibility issue. So there's that. And that is Matter of Laguerre. The second BIA case this week was Matter of Lepera. This case is about deficient notices to appear and in absentia motions to reopen. And really, it's a direct response to the Fifth Circuit's decision in Rodriguez v. Garland, discussed on episode 75 of the podcast. Mr. Lepera was placed in removal proceedings by being served with a notice to appear that lacked the date, time, and location of his initial removal hearing. He received a notice of hearing with that information later, missed the hearing, and was ordered removed in absentia. He filed motions to reopen and terminate, which were denied by IJs. Now the second motion is on appeal to the BIA. In this decision here, the BIA held that, quote, a respondent receives sufficient written notice to support the entry of an in absentia order of removal, even if he or she was served with a non-compliant notice to appear where the respondent was properly served with a statutory compliant notice of hearing specifying this information, end quote. So pouring a lot of cold water on Rodriguez v. Garland. What's going on? First, as we know, all of this began with the Supreme Court's Pereira decision. That decision regarded a cancellation of removal application and the stop time rule. And post-Pereira, the BIA resolved this very issue in 2019 in matter of Peña Mejia holding that a follow-up notice of hearing resolved any problems and therefore precluded reopening of an in absentia removal order if the notice of hearing was properly served. But then the Supreme Court issued Chavez, which held, at least for stop-time rule purposes and for non-LPR cancellation of removal, that a follow-up notice of hearing is irrelevant. Nevertheless, here, the BIA reaffirmed Peña Mejia. The BIA held that unlike with the stop-time rule, the ordinary meaning of the in absentia reopening statute, quote, and their place in the overall statutory scheme reflect that rescinding the respondent's in absentia order of removal is not warranted, end quote. Recall, the Nish Chavez court deemed it very important that the stop-time rule refers to a notice to appear, indicating that only an NTA rather than a notice of hearing would implicate the stop-time rule. Not so, apparently, with the in absentia and motion to reopen statutes, which refer only to, quote, written notice, end quote. The BIA believes, therefore, that that written notice can include a notice of hearing. 
The BIA went on to explain why the notice of hearing statute and overall statutory framework also supports its conclusion, that is, that the notice of hearing statute also requires notices of hearing to have the date, time, and location information and the consequences of failing to appear. The BIA recognized that Rodriguez v. Garland out of the Fifth reached a, quote, contrary conclusion, end quote, but the BIA disagrees with the Fifth Circuit, and in any event, this case arose in the First. So Mr. Lapara's case will not be reopened. And look, Rodriguez was always going to probably have a short window of purity. Two more things. First, as always, the BIA implicitly recognized that non-compliant NTAs violate a claims processing rule, but did not state what would be required to dismiss an NTA or possibly reopen under such circumstances. The BIA noted that all circuits have held the defect in an NTA non-jurisdictional, but that doesn't answer the claims processing rule remedy question. And second, as the decision is based on the BIA's interpretation of the statute's allegedly clear text, the circuits owe the decision no Chevron deference, meaning that any circuit can disagree with it if it disagrees on what the motion to reopen in absentia statute requires. Indeed, the Fifth Circuit pretty much already has. No circuit has reached a holding like the BIA's post Chavez, so keep making the arguments for petition for review. And that is Matter of Lapara. Next is USA v. Gomez Gomez, published by the Fifth Circuit on January 18th, 2022. Not a removal case, but it's short, and it's important, and I'll get through it really quickly because it resolves the issue about Texas assault that I discussed three weeks ago in the Avias Tavara v. Garland decision. Specifically here, the Fifth Circuit held on direct remand from the Supreme Court following its decision in Borden v. United States, quote, aggravated assault in Texas, end quote, in violation of Texas Penal Code section 22.01a1, is not an aggravated felony crime of violence as defined at INA section 16a because it can be committed with a reckless mens rea or mental state, and mental state is indivisible under the statute. Not much analysis, the holding is the holding. And in this case, the result will be that Mr. Gomez Gomez's conviction for illegal reentry under 8 U.S.C. section 1326 will not be enhanced criminally. But the effect for non-citizens everywhere convicted of the same Texas statute is massive. And, while I'm unsure what the Fifth Circuit has said about the statute and CIMTs, I am sure that whatever they've said in the past is now subject to potential revisiting in light of this decision. More on that in the next case. Glad I clicked on this non-petition for review case for the heck of it. And that is USA v. Gomez Gomez. That brings us, dear friends, to Diaz Esparza v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on January 17th, 2022, before the decision I just discussed. This is a long one all about CIMTs and race judicata and admissions. It's a lot. Mr. Diaz Esparza is from Mexico and became an LPR in 2005. However, in 2013, he was convicted of deadly conduct in violation of Texas Penal Code Section 2205A a statute similar but not the same to the one we just discussed, and in 2014 he was convicted of evading arrest with a motor vehicle in violation of Texas Penal Code Section 38.04. 
DHS initiated removal proceedings charging him as removable based on the allegation that the evading arrest conviction was an aggravated felony. That's all DHS alleged, and the IJ and BIA sustained the charge, as apparently did the Fifth Circuit. But Mr. Diaz-Esparza took it all the way up to the Supreme Court, which granted certiori and remanded after Sessions v. Maya. I imagine then that the issue must have been that the IJ found that the conviction was a crime of violence aggravated felony at 18 U.S.C. section 16b, which the Supreme Court found unconstitutionally vague in Demaya. So everything went back to the BIA, which terminated proceedings based on a finding that Mr. Diaz-Esparza was no longer removable as charged. Undeterred, DHS served Mr. Diaz-Esparza with a new NTA in 2019, alleging now that he was removable under a different provision, INA Section 237A2AII, as a non-citizen convicted of two or more CIMTs not arising out of a single scheme of criminal conduct, but based on the same convictions as before. The IJ sustained and the BIA affirmed, and now it's back before the Fifth. And at the Fifth Circuit, Mr. Diaz-Esparza made two arguments. First. He argued that Reis Judicata barred DHS from seeking his removal on this new removability ground, based on what happened the first time around, where the evading arrest conviction was the basis for those initial removal proceedings. And those proceedings were ultimately terminated. So, the argument goes, Reis Judicata prevents DHS from using that known and already adjudicated conviction to seek his removal now, on a different removability basis. And yes, indeed, quote, the doctrine of res judicata applies to administrative adjudications in the immigration context, end quote. But the Fifth Circuit held many years ago that, quote, res judicata does not bar a subsequent removal proceeding based on a conviction that also supported a prior terminated removal proceeding, so long as the two proceedings occur pursuant to distinct statutory provisions, end quote. So that's pretty much directly on point. In the Fifth Circuit, DHS can essentially keep coming back with new charges of removability, so long as they truly are new, based on the same conviction, unless an IJ terminates proceedings with prejudice. So it would seem. Quote, Because each proceeding has a distinct statutory basis, res judicata does not bar the present proceeding. End quote. On the merits, then, the Fifth Circuit also agreed that both convictions are CIMTs. Well, actually, it appears that Mr. Diaz-Esparza didn't contest that the evading arrest conviction was a CIMT, so it's all about whether deadly conduct in violation of Texas Penal Code Section 2205A is. Now true, the statute criminalizes, quote, recklessly engaging in conduct that places another in imminent danger of serious bodily injury, end quote. And actually, the Fifth Circuit has held previously that at least the misdemeanor version of a similar Texas assault statute isn't a CIMT because it requires only a reckless mental state. Think about that decision we just discussed. However, this statute here additionally requires the aggravating factor of a reckless risk of deadly conduct, and quote, deadly conduct entails a much greater degree of potentially physical harm than misdemeanor assault, end quote. That makes it sufficiently base, vile, or depraved to be a CIMT, according to the Fifth Circuit. Essentially, the Fifth Circuit has permitted a lessened mens rea to satisfy the CIMT definition based on the increased severity of harm with the assault statute. The BIA's 2017 matter of woo analysis applied, albeit unsighted. But remember, by this case's own analysis, none of this changes the CIMT analysis for simple misdemeanor assault in Texas, still not a CIMT, because the harm isn't sufficiently severe enough to overcome the recklessness mental state. Okay. 
Finally, Mr. Diaz-Esparza also argued that he can't actually be removable because his adjustment of status in the United States is not an admission. This is a bit of a counterintuitive argument. See, Mr. Diaz-Esparza initially entered the U.S. without inspection and admission. Unsure how he adjusts to LPR status later, but he did. The Section 237 grounds of removability only apply to those non-citizens inspected and admitted. So if his adjustment isn't an admission, so the argument goes, he's not removable for being convicted of two or more CIMTs, quote, at any time after admission, end quote. The logic is a bit absurd on its face, but the statute says what it says. That being said, the BIA has held that an adjustment is an admission in a litany of decisions under the right circumstances. It's actually pretty complicated because there's a whole line of cases where the Fifth Circuit has made a distinction between adjustment of status and admission. Holdings that might be good for Mr. Diaz-Esparza here, but have their own problems for non-citizens, at least if considered broadly rather than narrowly. But other lines of cases in the Fifth Circuit, more directly on point, have held that an adjustment is an admission, as the BIA has also held. To resolve the tension over its case law, the Fifth Circuit held as follows. If a non-citizen initially enters unlawfully, like Mr. Diaz-Esparza, the subsequent adjustment of status is an admission. But if he enters lawfully, like with a tourist visa, and then overstays, the adjustment of status is not an admission. At least that appears to be what the Fifth Circuit is saying. Most importantly to this decision, according to the Fifth, to hold that an adjustment for someone who initially entered unlawfully is not an admission would lead to absurd results, so it will not so hold. A bit relatedly, the Fifth Circuit also held that it didn't matter that Mr. Diaz-Esparza left the U.S. and came back with his green card or was otherwise paroled in 2019, after the convictions. Under BIA precedent, when a non-citizen has, quote, multiple dates of admission, the operative date for determining removability is the date of the admission by virtue of which the non-citizen was present in the U.S. when he committed his crime, which for non-citizens who initially entered without inspection includes the date of adjustment to lawful permanent resident status, end quote, a.k.a. Mr. Diaz-Esparza. That makes him removable. Admissions are always complicated and fun, no? With a CIMT holding to boot. Returning to race judicata real quick, then I'll let you go. Obviously an unfortunate holding for non-citizens on race judicata. But remember this from the BIA last year in a matter of Voss, quote, If a criminal conviction was charged as a ground of removability or was known to the IJ at the time cancellation of removal was granted, that conviction cannot serve as the sole factual predicate for a charge of removability in subsequent removal proceedings, end quote. Episode 24 of the podcast. So I guess read in tandem in the Fifth Circuit, if, like here, a criminal charge is known, and if, despite it being known, an IJ grants immigration relief, DHS can't turn around and allege removability later based solely on the conviction. DHS can do so, however, if an IJ hasn't previously granted relief because res judicata doesn't bar that action in the Fifth Circuit. Only, it would seem, a grant of relief does. Interesting stuff. And that is Diaz Esparza v. Garland. <laughs> So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. 
thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Like a bat out of hell, I'll be gone when the morning comes.